Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reverb. I'm Calvin Pollock, and with me today is my co-host and co-producer, Ben Williams. Since our last episode, a great deal of important stuff has been happening politically and rhetorically, to put it mildly. On May 25th, Minneapolis resident George Floyd was killed by police officer Derek Chauvin. The killing was caught on video and circulated shortly thereafter. Chauvin was seen kneeling on Floyd's neck for nine minutes as Floyd said, I can't breathe. Massive protests erupted afterwards in Minneapolis and other cities, including here in Pittsburgh. Protesters demanding justice for Floyd and other victims of police brutality, including especially Breonna Taylor, who was killed on March 13th by police officers who had illegally entered her home in Louisville. In 2014 and 2015, in the wake of protests against police killings of black people back then, the Black Lives Matter movement emerged. And for several years, the movement was accommodated by U.S. politicians with piecemeal reforms. Police body cameras, civilian review boards, new use of force policies, and so on. But now, as the movement has reemerged five years later in response to this latest wave of police violence, many protest organizers are demanding more. Defund police departments toward an ultimate goal of abolishing them, as well as prisons. So in our discussion today, we want to address some of the rhetorical and political aspects of these issues, focusing on the constitutive role of white supremacy generally and anti-black racism specifically in U.S. state power and the key differences between reform and abolition. So to begin, Ben, I wanted to just ask, what is your overall impression of everything that's been going on? Well, you know, I think overall, everybody in my mind has sort of encountered a shift in in viewpoint. For many, this is the type of work that's been continually done, that's been pressed for uh, by those who are within abolitionist circles, while others, in my mind, are beginning in the process of a reawakening. You know, you think about books that are selling out, conversations that are being had that are difficult, and in an interesting fashion, the sensuousness of the street as a space of protest, as a space of eruption, has reemerged at a time when the, the primary goals and objectives have been sanitation and hygiene. So it's, it's a really tumultuous, interesting, and necessary moment. Yeah, I'm really glad you pointed to the issue of the street as a space of protest and how that's being approached rhetorically by, you know, both protesters and authorities. We have a really fascinatingly layered rhetorical situation because as we've been discussing on, I think, our past three, four episodes, uh, we are living through the COVID-19 crisis right now. And I think it's impossible to analyze what's been going on with these protests for justice for George Floyd and other victims of police brutality without also talking about COVID-19 and what what that has done to our politics. So one of the things that I've noticed just in my reading of commentary on these protests is that there have been kind of dueling reactionary responses. So on the conservative right, There have been a lot of people pointing out uh, the hypocrisy of the libs who were mocking conservative protests back in April and May against the lockdowns, protests that liberals 
viewed as reckless public behavior that was spreading COVID-19 and conservatives view liberals as hypocrites for not calling out these this latest wave of protests for similarly reckless public behavior. Meanwhile, on the other side, I see liberals decrying the hypocrisy of police who, as we all remember, were rather deferential towards conservative protesters, many of them heavily armed, who actually entered state houses. Police largely avoided confrontation with those protesters, whereas this week, last week, in the wave of protests against police brutality, there have been very few that haven't been met by rather extreme police force, um, which we're going to talk about later. But I think that you know, we can kind of get lost in this game of, of hypocrisy checking on both sides. And I wonder how we can move beyond that to see common threads uh, among these things, one of which I would argue is that in both cases you have um, bereaved populations who feel that the state has accrued to itself unjust powers. On the conservative side, you have a belief that the, the proper role of the state, and, and by state I mean both the federal government as well as specific state governments, such as here in Pennsylvania where we have a democratic governor and a large, motivated, well-funded conservative opposition. The proper role of such a state is to make our spaces and our political systems safe for capital, for the accumulation of capital, for consumption, and for the you know, trade of goods and services. They view the state imposing lockdowns as fundamentally taking on powers that it should not possess. Whereas protesters who I tend to side with in the streets, raising their voices against police brutality, are similarly modeling a vision of the proper role of the state. And from that perspective, the state is encroaching on black lives on a daily basis. No, I think that's exactly right. And one, in my mind, um, the conservative protests are, you know, rendered very inert in the logics that motivate them. Whereas on the left, there are both extreme and quotidian forms of violence enacted by the capital accumulation that's being securitized and protected through state institutions that's re being reacted against, right? So... I think that when we consider examining what's common to both, one clearly has a praxis that arises from a fundamental existence of precarity and one where it's, it's a momentary lapse of not having um, access to grooming, right? <laughs> yeah, no, that, I mean, that is actually like literally, I think the subject of some of the protest signs at those anti-lockdown protests was like, I need to get my hair cut, right? And I think that gets at the next topic that I did want to cover. How do we understand state power and the role of policing in state power? Because what we're seeing in these protests and even more so in the incidents that are giving rise to the protests is seemingly what a lot of political theorists have referred to as a state of exception. So the concept of the state of exception comes from thinkers like Carl Schmitt and Giorgio Agamben. And the basic idea behind the state of exception is that 
the key way that the government establishes its power, constitutes its power, is defining and declaring states of exception, which are moments when the normal procedures of parliamentary democracy are in a state of suspension. In other words, basic protections, rights, and laws are declared invalid before a larger policy goal. In the U.S., we tend to associate this mostly with wartime incidents like the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Even there was a resurgence in study of Schmidt and Agamben's concept after 9-11 when the George Bush administration implemented the suspension of habeas corpus for detainees at Guantanamo Bay and mass surveillance programs and a whole host of other sort of unprecedented government actions. This was talked about as a state of exception. But something I've been observing is that in these recent protests, there appear to be states of exception happening all over the place. So there was a really pivotal day last week, last Monday on June 1st. There were protests in Washington, D.C. in response to George Floyd's killing. And police and National Guard troops used tear gas and other riot control tactics to clear the protesters from Lafayette Square in D.C., specifically so that the president could walk from the White House to a church where he wanted to do a photo op. And, you know, based on all reporting, there was really no immediate threat either to police or to the president. But nevertheless, these kind of violent tactics were imposed in order to clear the streets. And then on that exact same day, in fact, like shortly after Trump spoke, here in Pittsburgh, there was a simultaneous protest going on. And based on apparently one minor alleged incident of vandalism, police declared the entire protest unlawful and began using similar tactics to what were used in D.C. Several protesters were injured, dozens were arrested. And so obviously this is not new. There have been protests in the past that have been violently dispersed. But I think it's very striking the way that this was seemingly handed down from the president and the D.C. police and similar kinds of violent tactics, suspension of basic rights of assembly and speech, laws against use of force were suspended all over the country, even reaching here in Pittsburgh. What does this reveal about the power that the government still has to declare states of exception and how that is activated in moments of political instability. Well, I think in some ways it relates to the ways that the state imagines itself in position to the people. And I've been thinking very much through the really social imaginary of how the state renders itself as a social body and really positions itself in conflict with the people in this state of exception, the tactics that were employed, which were hyper-violent and unnecessary, very much reveal that fact that in conceiving of itself as a social body, that these acts of defense really position the people as invaders, as parasites, when, when in fact the, the goals are averse to that, right? It's about rendering protection for oneself and and really attempting to, to arrive at something that looks like the semblance of a democracy and the movements of people to, to render power in their own hands. Mm. 
Yeah, definitely. And I really appreciate you talking about people being positioned as invaders. One of the primary rhetorical tactics that has come out of these protests is police chiefs invoking this trope of the outside agitator that somehow these protests are being led or at at the very least critically and crucially infected by people not from the area who don't share the goals or the values of the protest leaders. And it seems very clearly to be a guilt by association tactic designed to delegitimize the entire action, right? And that's certainly how it's received, even if when the mayor in Pittsburgh and the police chief in Pittsburgh pay lip service to the value of the protest organizers that they intended to make a point about the value of George Floyd's life and the lives of other people killed, that that lip service is not really the part that all of the angry conservative commenters on Facebook hear. The part they hear is the outside agitator part, and they tend to delegitimize the entire protest as a result of it. And I think that that gets to what I think might be a useful way to problematize this idea of the state of exception. So there has been a lot of scholarship that has critiqued this notion of the state of exception from the perspective that there have always been states of exception, particularly in Western colonialist democracies, that depended on slave labor for their creation and their constitution, right? And so I think here of scholars like Achille Mbembe, whose notion of necropolitics is very clearly a critique of this idea of the state of exception as defining government power. So Mbembe writes, state power should be understood as not solely the ability to declare states of exception, but rather more generally the ability or the right to kill. So Mbembe writes, Race has been the ever-present shadow in Western political thought and practice, especially when it comes to imagining the inhumanity of or rule over foreign peoples. Racism is above all a technology aimed at permitting the exercise of biopower. Here he's referencing Foucault that old sovereign right of death. In the economy of biopower, the function of racism is to regulate the distribution of death and to make possible the murderous functions of the state. It is, Foucault says, the condition for the acceptability of putting to death. Foucault states clearly that the sovereign right to kill and the mechanisms of biopower are inscribed in the way all modern states function. Indeed, they can be seen as constitutive elements of state power in modernity. In many respects, the very structure of the plantation system and its aftermath manifests these emblematic and paradoxical figures of the state of exception. This figure of the state of exception is paradoxical here for two reasons. First, in the context of the plantation, the humanity of the slave appears as the perfect figure of a shadow. Indeed, the slave condition results from a triple loss, loss of a home, loss of rights over his or her body, and loss of political status. This triple loss is identical with absolute domination, natal alienation, and social death, expulsion from humanity altogether, end quote. So I want to think about Mbembe's consideration of slavery, both in terms of our received ideas about what state power is and possibly moving towards an understanding of state power as the right to kill. Yeah, I think you've really highlighted something I've been considering, which is 
very much the genealogy of what we might term liberalism or concepts that are abstract like citizenship and freedom are very much imbricated in the genealogy of colonial processes of racialization, of difference. You know, very much as Lisa Lowe describes in The Intimacies of Four Continents, these are not concluded processes. And I think what you're talking about is the fact that so much of the violence that was in its beginnings and in its inception, that they are continuous, that they impart into our contemporary moment. And I've been thinking, too, about their relation in regards to Christina Sharp's very important work in the wake on blackness and being, in which she talks about the various instantiations of the metaphor of the slave ship as it manifests today in the very material realities of precarity as experienced by people of color. And one of the chapters is about the weather. So she begins with this invocation of the weather surrounding the ships, but then she thinks about the weather or the atmosphere that exists in the experiences of black people today. And she talks about the climate as one that is saturated, that is defined by anti-blackness. And she calls this anti-blackness viral, and she begins to represent it as a singularity. So I very much see these state moves toward power and reenactments of power as instantiations of that singularity that exists. Sharp comments, slave laws are transformed into other means of oppression. Colonial instantiations of exploitation are transformed into neoliberal economic arrangements that are all about relegation and persecution. To briefly quote from Christina Sharp, she says that we moved from slave law to lynch law into Jane and Jim Crow and other administrative logics that remember, end quote, which means that re-embody, that re-articulate the, quote, brutal conditions of enslavement that supposedly came to an end. But in fact, I think what you're remarking on is the importance of recognizing how continual and seemingly unending these are. And it allows us to really see the, the root and the source of such uh, eruption of anti-colonial protests and anti-state violence protests that are emerging today. Yeah, definitely. I think that the point about genealogy is really apt because we tend to view history as a story of progress, a story of a trend line that's kind of constantly going up and constantly expanding to include more and more people. But the experience of black Americans has always put the lie to that idea. Another really important scholar in this regard is Loie Quaquant, who has done just really important sociological work tracing exactly what Sharp is talking about from slavery to Jim Crow to ghettoization and to a society of mass incarceration. Today, about eight times as many black people are imprisoned as white people. And in general, the U.S. maintains by far the largest prison population in the world. And that's not just raw numbers. That's, you know, percentage of our population that we're locking up. And what Waquant does that I think is really important is he does a really materialist economic form of analysis of this, which is to say that he breaks down, you know, not only 
how these institutions have functioned to create a society of racism and group identity, but also the forms of labor that slavery, Jim Crow, etc., enabled, so that this has always been not just a way for people to see each other differently, but also it's been a way for ruling economic institutions to sustain themselves. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think of a book which is really surging on the best-selling charts right now, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. She talks about those similar processes. And her argument stems from this notion of mass incarceration as operating, as she says, within a tightly networked system of laws, policies, customs, and institutions that operate collectively to ensure the subordinate status of a group largely defined by race. So as you mentioned earlier, this linear narrative of progress is no longer a feasible one. And it'll, it, we need to take some time to really consider the ways that perhaps it may not be a matter of overt bigotry all the time, there are matters of racial indifference that emerge. And one institution that I think we'd like to discuss today is policing. That seems to be a manifestation of both extrajudiciary, extreme, and quotidian forms of violence that are maintained and relegated to the police. Uh, Didier Fassin in a recent publication titled Police Are the Punishment, argues that the trivialization and normalization of extrajudiciary punishment by the police are a major unrecognized fact. And I think what we're beginning to see today is that it bears recognition and it bears reckoning with. We're beginning to see how the, the punitive function that has been allowed to exist within the institutions of the state as manifested in police is perhaps problematic. Yeah, absolutely. I think that each of these major events that spurs a protest is the most visible tip of a spear of white supremacy that, you know, is much more quotidian, which is just daily irritation and surveillance and just kind of not not having the right to be left alone. And I think that that connects to what we wanted to talk about next, some of the work from Simone Brown. Right. So within Simone Brown's work, some of the discussions in there are really about the object of surveillance as a media practice being very contingent on these representational practices that were always already in existence. And Brown's work draws on Steve Mann's Planes of Valence. And one of them that is uh, reused as a form of praxis by Brown, which I think is important to think about today, especially how surveillance practices and visual culture have really emerged so ubiquitously across social media scapes in ways that make it to where people are positioned in a place of potential um, power, or at least in some way that abates the power of the state. And the concept that Brown discusses is dark surveillance. One, one thing that's maybe important to stress here is that surveillance is taken in this theory to be in some ways the opposite of surveillance, whereas surveillance is 
all of the various techniques and technologies that we have for viewing the powerful and seeing what they are doing and understanding it and, and thereby, you know, developing action and response to it. And in this, to quote from Brown, is something that plots imaginaries that are oppositional and that are hopeful for another way of being. It is a site of critique as it speaks to black epistemologies of contending with anti-black surveillance in city spaces and beyond, which are reappropriated, co-opted, repurposed, and challenged in order to facilitate survival and escape. And I think in our moment, uh, video footage that emerged and video footage that we can think even within the 90s with Rodney King has uh, led to reactions. And this becomes a form of resistance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see happening a kind of problematic between surveillance and surveillance. There is a viral response that often accompanies people using their power to do surveillance, like everyday surveillance. We can think about the incident with Amy Cooper fundamentally surveilling an innocent man in the park going bird watching and calling the cops. It then transformed into an instance of surveillance with the victim you know, fundamentally surveilling her and allowing the images of her to, you know, be observed by more people and perhaps establish a norm that, you know, you shouldn't mess with people just uh, bird watching in the park because they happen to be black. And there are many other examples of this. Even I think of things like the ways in which the post 9-11 security state deputized ordinary people to, quote, see something, say something, which in many cases resulted in surveillance of ordinary Muslim people or Sikh people wearing turbans, simply had the cops called on them for being in public. And so that that kind of gets at the ways in which ordinary people are deputized to do surveillance. But also in these instances of police brutality, we see dark surveillance, as Simone Brown describes it, becoming a very important and effective tactic where in 2014 there was the video taken by Ramsey Orta of Eric Garner being killed by police, which played a major role in sparking Black Lives Matter protests that fall. And in nearly every case, there's a video that comes out and there's someone who bravely took that video and often is persecuted by police. Ramsey Orta just got out of jail, I believe this week, the week of this recording. The police refused to leave him alone after he took that video. A similar level of harassment has been faced by Darnella Frazier, who filmed George Floyd's killing. And even here in Pittsburgh, two young women who filmed a protest in which police used violent force against protesters. Those women have been charged with crimes. By all accounts, there's no real evidence against them, but they were visited by police and searched and charged with crimes of apparently throwing water bottles at protesters, uh, when really their crime seems to have been that they took videos of the police using force and spread those videos on social media. So there's definitely a continuing conflict between surveillance and surveillance that's animating these controversies. So I'd like to 
to move our conversation forward to begin to think about some of the aspirational politics that are invested or becoming really emergent at this time. I'd like to draw again on the work of Christina Sharp. And for her, the term aspiration uh, bears a lot of weight. And she argues that to be aspirational is to put breath back into the stereotyped black subject in hostile weather. So thinking about some of the conversation we had earlier where tactics like surveillance must emerge because of the ubiquitous practices that make anti-blackness viral, this object of aspiration is about life-saving practices and practices of survival. So I think it's important to consider the types of care, the ethics of care, how we can repair, how we can maintain, and how we can provide attention to those who are relegated to precarious positions. So I'm hoping we can move our conversation into thinking about police and prison abolition, as well as reform. Yeah, definitely. I I think being able to imagine a way forward is probably the most potent and inspiring aspect of what's been going on, because we tend to get locked in this uh, cycle of critique and debating whether the critique is valid, uh, rather than moving from a critique to building and imagining and, and aspiring towards something else. And, and I think that what's been very inspiring has been the circulation of ideas about police and prison abolition. One of the things that I think is important to distinguish in terms of abolition versus reform is that abolition and the discourse surrounding it seeks to draw attention to precisely the historical trajectory that we were talking about earlier in this discussion, the centrality of anti-Black racism to U.S. institutions, especially U.S. institutions of law and public safety, and that if we wish to deal with racism fundamentally, we will deal with the racist roots of these public safety systems. So part of that process and part of the process of abolition itself moving toward a place where it's not just about ending the brutality of the police, but perhaps looking to other forms of care and safety where police wouldn't very much be needed at all. This is ultimately the goal of abolition. And to do so, though, um, I think it requires the kind of work that we've been discussing, which is denaturalizing this notion that police and governments are necessarily co-constitutive elements. But I like that you've really invested time in moving us past critique, right? So much of the work done by, by Christina Sharp, by Michelle Alexander, by those who very much are uh, living within the wake of these, these violences is, is a matter of critique, and they're waging critique. But simultaneously, too, there's an attempt to reimagine. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, you were just referring to imagining other kinds of governance that are fundamentally not about locking people up or policing them, but are about nourishing them and providing an ethics of care to them that 
you know, hand in glove with an abolitionist agenda. If you read the work of people like Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore, is an agenda of adequate public resources, adequate public programs that will create a society that doesn't need to be so massively policed and massively incarcerated. But I think that gets at the brilliant strategy that anti-black racism has enabled for ruling economic and political institutions that have wanted to prevent that kind of society. Uh, It's precisely unmaking and abolishing institutions that focus solely on those negative forms of governance that is going to be necessary if we want to create the forms of positive governance that we know that we all need. Just from a political perspective, I think that it's important to note that abolition is very much not on the table from any mainstream politicians, certainly at the national level. What the Democrats tend to propose are reforms. And the key difference is that a reformist agenda does not actually seek to reduce the role of policing in public life. What it seeks to do is kind of tinker at the edges, um, rebrand policing, perhaps impose new rules on it. But often what ends up happening is that those rules are enacted by the various institutions that you're trying to control. So it becomes kind of legitimacy-shaping exercise rather than a true change in the relationship between the government and the governed. So I think that given all of this context and the fact that the Democratic nominee for president this year, Joe Biden, um, helped author the 1994 crime bill uh, signed by Democratic President Bill Clinton, which contributed massively to mass incarceration in the 90s and up to the present day, I think we need to be skeptical of some of the policy agendas that have been coming out from mainstream politicians and continually try to listen to activists as we push this conversation forward. I've been considering the ways that the rhetoric surrounding these incidents has really called or evoked radical response, right? And I think about the ways that what we've been experiencing, the crisis that's been mounting continually has allowed for radical voices to be, you know, in some cases, most cases, co-opted by the mainstream, but still there, there is this priming for radicalization that is emerging. And I think that it's really important for us to consider the ways that the momentum that has been inspired by the global waves of protests can continue. So I guess one question I have, and one question I hope our listeners are considering is, what do we do, right? What do we do at the local, at the institutional level to examine these genealogies, critique these genealogies, but then begin to change and radically reimagine these white supremacist institutions that relegate people continually into positions of higher risk and precarity? Yeah, and I think towards that end, we wanted to briefly read from a really great article that two of our faculty colleagues wrote, came out in the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, this week. The title of the article is Higher Ed's Toothless Response to the Killing of George Floyd. Subtitle, Statements by College Leaders Reflect an Unholy Alchemy of Risk Management, 
legal liability and trustee anxiety. So Richard Purcell and Jason England write, the right thing is not releasing statements that denounce a single killing while neglecting to connect that killing to the larger circumstances that made it inevitable. The right thing does not encourage us to mourn tragedies rather than attack systemic failings, to perform grief without admitting culpability. All of that is antithetical to the holistic analysis on which the best transformative scholarship hinges. Absolutely. I wanted to read one other portion where they critique the kind of neoliberal rhetoric that has come out of universities in the wake of this controversy. They write, Neoliberal rhetoric appears most saliently in the way colleges talk about structural racism. The list of student, staff, and faculty services, most of them wholly inadequate and underfunded, that are trotted out in hyperlinks. We are asked to tackle collective problems of the public sphere through self-improvement and self-service. What tends to follow hollow official statements is a cliché slate of programming. Focus groups, town halls, anti-racism reading lists, testimonials of hurt, confessions of guilt that accommodate both sides, unquote. And what I, what I loved about that was that they, you know, this article came out and the same day we received an email from Carnegie Mellon administrators basically doing exactly what they described. It's just so spot on that the most powerful institutions just have virtually no idea what to do in response to this moment. And that's why I think the best thing for us to do is to organize ourselves and really try to center and uplift student-led and faculty-led initiatives that are a bit more oriented towards tackling these problems in the public sphere and collectively. I wanted to briefly mention a petition that's been put together by a huge coalition of different student-led organizations at CMU. It's called CMU colon Confront Racist Policing in Our Community. And, you know, I won't read from the petition because there's just a ton of research and a ton of uh, really important critiques included within it. But fundamentally, what it calls for is for Carnegie Mellon to reduce its relationship with the police in the same way that organizers around the country are trying to reduce the role of police and prisons in our society. What these organizers are trying to do is to say, here at CMU, let's do what we can to, in a sense, abolish our own relationship with the police and use our institutional power to call on the mayor and other administrative bodies to reduce the power of the police in the community. This is not just about virtue signaling. We need to fundamentally change how the police and how prisons operate in this society. I'm excited to uh, keep reading and writing and, and organizing with both my fellow academics and community members here in Pittsburgh. Uh, looking forward to keeping the conversation going. Ben, any other final thoughts? Well, I think as you've you've said, waging a critique is important, but we have to remember that words can only go so far and responses can be anodyne. And so action, direct action in all its forms is really what's necessary. And these sources that we've been talking about, these abolitionist movements, I think capture best how we can reimagine 
but not just how we can imagine, but how we can act. Our show today was produced and edited by Ben Williams and Calvin Pollack. Reverb's co-producer is Sophie Wadzak. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for listening.